Welcome back to the Sitcom Archive Deep Dive Overdrive. As promised, we're going to be doing some bonus episodes during this Faulty Towers Season 2, just like we did with The Good Life in Season 1. Alison's not with me for this one because both myself and my guest are on Antipodean time. So we've got a treat for you today. Our guest is a modern Renaissance man. He's a comedian, gag and screenwriter, voiceover artist, stage and screen actor, sketch writer, quiz show zealot, blogger, novelist, game app designer, nemesis of Todd from Neighbours, Australian <laughs> and homo sapien male, Stephen Hall. <laughs> hello, thank you for having me. Hello, hello. Wow, what a, what a CV. Yes, I am a homo sapien. I was surprised when I looked at your, uh, your full CV and saw that you were uh, Todd's nemesis in Neighbours and I had to cast my mind right back. Yeah, that was like the early 90s, 89, 90, 91, 92, and I was a character called Wolf, and I was a bully, um, and I terrorised all the kids in Ramsey Street and even kidnapped the dog at one stage. So I was a nasty piece of work. And, of course, I got one come up and said, yeah. You kidnapped Bouncer? I kidnapped Bouncer, yeah. Oh, bastard. I know, I know. I locked him in a shed, and then some of the other characters did a switcheroo and, and rescued Bouncer, put in a, a, a vicious German shepherd guard dog in there to terrify me into, <laughs> I think, a confession. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was great. Some of our Australian listeners will know Stephen, of course, from shows like Mad as Hell, or indeed the official stage version of Faulty Towers that ran in Australia back in 2015-16. Some of you may have even been to that show. It was written by John Cleese himself after one of his periodic divorces. Um, John personally chose Stephen to undertake the unenviable challenge of stepping into the considerably large shoes of, Bras- of Basil Faulty and bringing him to life on stage. That must have been daunting for you, Stephen, and exciting. It was it was both of those things. As soon as I found out they were doing it and doing it in in Australia of all places, I, I, I sort of leapt at the chance to audition. And yeah, the audition process was fairly grueling as well. There was three rounds of it, and the last round was like a, a full eight hour day of learning seven scenes and just going in and doing them with different um, fellow cast members and different people auditioning for different roles. So. Uh, played opposite three or four Sybils and two or three Manuels and a couple of majors. Um, (laughs) And and, uh, then at the end, uh, when he he chose me, I just thought this changes everything. And it was was daunting, but it was thrillingly exciting. And um, obviously I was very well supported by the whole cast and crew. So, yeah, what a... I mean, what a, what a pinnacle, and for, for him to be so enthusiastic about trusting me with it was, um, as you say, uh, quite, a, quite a lot to live up to. Oh, I imagine it was um, terrifying and exhilarating in equal measure, surely, with him being there. I, yeah, the terrifying parts, terrifying parts happened more in rehearsal as I struggled, not struggled, but it was just hard work learning it all and uh, getting all the, because it's not just, you're not sort of, just carrying the the action of it, but it's all, all the lines, but and it's not just the lines, but it's the choreography because the choreography is split second stuff, and um, people m- may not realise, but it is choreographed to within an inch of its life and paced to within an inch of its life. And so there was one 
part in, we had six weeks of rehearsal and there was one part where the director, CJ Ranger, who also contributed to the script said at one stage, she was worried about me getting these lines down. And that was, that was probably the moment when I was most scared. But after it fell into place, we were so well rehearsed and well drilled and well supported that come opening night, it was just, I can't wait to show everyone what we've got here. Brilliant. I suppose when you're doing eight shows a week as well, by week three, you've got it absolutely down pat. Yes, yes. The, it, it is muscle memory and, and you have got it down pat. But by the same token, having, having that luxury of being able to tweak and hone and try different little things. And so the show that we did at the start, which was in August 2016, I think, evolved. And I think the show that we did at the end in January 2017 was quite different and better and better. Uh, and even even little gestures and body language things, I remember there was one where at the start of the show, it, it opens with me coming in, looking at looking at the newspaper, just walking in and looking at the newspaper, which I've just picked up from outside and going behind the counter, coming in through the double doors at the front of the set. And one day I thought, I'll stick my arm out at a right angle, um, which makes Basil look a bit more sort of affected and a bit more wanting to be posh. And it's just a simple body language thing. But it it really worked. And, and, and it was one of those things that if you're only doing a small number of performances, you don't have the time or the luxury to to throw in things like that. Mm. So yeah, that was that was a little bit of not really a bit of business, but a, a helpful thing for the posture of the character um, that I kept in after that. I suppose that's a luxury as well of, of live performances. You get to iterate and uh, improve on, on what you've done before. If not necessarily improve, but it's, a, it's an organic living yes. production rather than something that's just a one-take thing like TV, I guess. Very much so. And you'll, you'll do something or you'll do a line in a certain way and it'll get a big laugh one night and... And so you just, yeah, you tweak and you hone and you're always tweaking and honing and to try and make the experience as good as possible for the audience. Yeah, it's, it is a luxury and, um, and it's fun too. That's, that's one of the fun things of it. Once you've got it all, you know, in your bones and you can do it, then you can play. That's why it's called playing. Yeah. We were talking actually in a recent episode, which episode were we deep diving? I think it might have been the Hotel Inspectors, which is one of the ones that, that was formed part of the um, the production that you did. What you're saying about a, a line sometimes working and sometimes not working is interesting. When you watch the um, the DVD commentary that John Cleese did to Vaulty Towers, where he was saying that one of his favourite jokes was when he said to Bernard Cribbin's character, "Yes, we have got a table tennis table. It's not in the best of condition, but it could certainly be used in an emergency." And of course, yes, yes. there was no actual laughter from the studio audience on the day. But it's his favourite joke of the entire show, according to the to the commentary. Oh, is that right? Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like an ad lib, doesn't it? But I don't think there's any ad libs in Salty Towers, are they? It's, they're so scripted to within an inch of their lives. Probably so. We observed that it was probably more a Python-esque joke than a faulty joke. Mm. And maybe that's why it didn't land. I don't know. Yeah. And, and talking of Python, um, we'll come back to we'll come back to the Faulty Towers production, of course. But um, some more of your history and uh, some of our Australian listeners will know this too of course but you've been in Romper Stomper with Russell Crowe which is is he probably is he he and John Cleese the, the biggest names you've worked with you think in showbiz um <laughs> um Eric Idle um oh, of course Eric Idle yeah yeah Eric Idle John Cleese um Paul Hogan um 
Uh, I'll, I'll come back to the name dropping. There'll be name dropping. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm sure there yeah, will. Yeah, there will be. On the Eric Idle stuff, of course, um, it's probably pertinent to discuss your involvement in in Eric Idle's spam a lot. Was that 2007, around that time? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. 2007, that's right. Well, again, it was it, it was here in, here in Melbourne was where they were starting the Australian professional production. And when I, being a lifelong Python nerd um, and an actor and someone who loves comedy and someone who's, um, for better or worse, made a bit of a living out of comedy. Yeah, of course, I wanted to audition for it. And I found out as much as I could and I bought the soundtrack. And at that stage, it had only just sort of started a year or a year earlier and it was a big hit on Broadway and it had won Tony Awards. And I think our production was being launched around the same time as the Las Vegas production. Okay. Been in England as well. So it was fairly newish at this stage. And um, yeah, went along and auditioned for Lancelot, which is the you know the John Cleese character. Yeah, and, uh, and also it's it's Lancelot in the in Spamalot. It's Lancelot and Tim the Enchanter, who's also played by John Cleese in the film, and um, the French Taunter, who is also played by John Cleese in the film, and the leader of the Knights, who say me, which is played by Michael Palin in the film. But um, so yeah, that was a, a, you know, sort of playing those four characters and costume changes and all the rest, just sort of running from start to finish. But that was a joyous, wonderful, happy experience. And, um, yeah, that ran about seven months, I think, something like that. Yeah. Was Eric Idle involved in the casting process for that as well? Yeah, he was. Um, they recorded all the auditions and sent them back to him. And then um, I, I'm sure that he had, I don't know exactly how much say he had in the final decision, but I imagine it would be pretty hefty. And, um he came out here for the uh, opening night, and um, he came back a couple of months later, and so got to got to meet him, and um, that that was that was pretty. Well, I was I was a bit nervous about meeting him because it it was just um, a real, really quick experience. He just came in, said hello, you know, mm. posed for a couple of photos, and made a speech at the end of opening night. But he was very complimentary, so I after he complimented my work I thought that's yeah, good I can die now I can that, <laughs> that was that was a real thrill well with his I was going to say if you've got his personal number and John Cleese personal number you must be stalking Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin at this point to try and get a, a full house <laughs> yeah that's right and, and yeah we missed out on Graham Chapman and Terry Jones unfortunately, unfortunately but, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah there's there's yeah there's a couple more doors to knock on I suppose <laughs> Obviously, you were a big fan of of, of Python and, and, and Faulty Towers as a kid. What else influenced you comedically as a kid, other than those things? It was uh, it's mostly English stuff, and um, I, my dad introduced my dad was English, and uh, he introduced me to you know, Benny Hill and um, Are You Being Served and all of those things. And yeah, Faulty Towers, Monty Python. And then I started getting into Woody Allen and the Marx Brothers and Steve Martin. Uh, and uh, and when I was when I was seventeen, I started doing stand up comedy here in Melbourne. So there was quite a quite a booming stand up scene, and and uh, there's quite a yeah quite a good tradition of Australian sketch comedy. So and Paul Hogan, I was crazy about Paul Hogan as a kid. So again, that was a real mm. thrill to be able to meet him and work with him. Because um, yeah, Paul Hogan was really a big deal here in his TV show way before Crocodile Dundee. And, um, you know, you talk about it in the schoolyard the next day. He was like a, a real comedy folk hero, I guess you'd say. So, yeah, I think they're my go-to influences. Oh, the young ones, French and Saunders, um, Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, 
early Ben Elton, Blackadder, of course. Filthy Rich and Cat Flap is one of those shows that's almost forgotten about now in the lexicon of, of British sitcoms, isn't it? But it was quite seminal. I loved it. Oh, God, I was mad for it. And I think it was three, four years after The Young Ones, and they only ever did six episodes, didn't they? But yeah. any show that gives us a game show called Who Were Sounds a Bit Rude is, is okay by me. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever see the um, acceptance speech Paul Hogan gave at, I'm not sure if it was the Oscars or some glitzy big American award thing, and he gave the most, I, I couldn't give you an example of what he said, but it was the most hysterically Australian acceptance speech I think I've oh, ever yeah. seen. <laughs> well, there was there was one, I don't know if it's, this wasn't an acceptance speech, but they asked him to present at the Oscars the year, and he, he went out there and apparently, you know, he didn't provide a, a script to the organisers or anything, he just went out there and, you know, he knew what he was going to say. Yeah. But um, he just talked about... You should all be really, really nervous if one one little mistake and it's all going to go horribly wrong. And if you if you don't win, don't give us this. Don't give us this pretending to be happy for everyone else. And he says <laughs> something like, um, um, "I'm nominated for one of these tonight, and uh, if they read out, they open that envelope. My name's not on it. It's not going to be pretty." <laughs> and, and I just remember that, and it sort of brought the house down. It's not going to be pretty. Yeah, he was great. Oh, gee. Expert at playing up to that to that Aussie stereotype, I suppose. Though, Ooh, yeah, yeah. Or was that him? Was that just him in private as well? <laughs> I think I think he I think he is that sort of anti-authoritarian larrikin. But he yeah, he made a career out of it, and that was his shtick for you know decades. And uh, and he was beloved for it, yeah, absolutely beloved for it. And um, yeah, he got it down to a fine art. <laughs> so your your approach to the audition in terms of uh, prepping for for the role of Basil Fawlty, did you spend a lot of time trying to learn the mannerisms that, that John Cleese employed or his, his style of walking and the physicality, which is obviously something Cleese did brilliantly? What was your approach? Yeah, all of that. I did, I did watch the episodes because the play was based on or adapted from three episodes, the hotel inspectors, the Germans, and communication problems with a little bit of Basil the Rat thrown in. And so I watched those three episodes and did start to move like him and note his mannerisms and note his postures. I even went to went as far as sort of drawing stick figures of Basil in various, many moods of Basil and, and little stick figures of how he would um, react and hold himself in certain moments of high stress and, and, you know, when he's high status and when he's low status because he's, he switches between them in, in the blink of an eye when yeah. he's trying to trying to suck up to someone or he's looking down his nose at someone um and learning and i just did an english accent which i sort of subconsciously couldn't help drifting into doing a, a vocal impression of him and one of the things that that john said afterwards was they cast both me and blazy blazy who played blazy best who played Sybil. um one of the things that they liked about both of us and one of the reasons they cast both of both of us is that they thought we were making the characters our own and they thought that we weren't doing impressions of them. And I do remember looking at Blazy and saying, I thought we were doing impressions of them. <laughs> <laughs> that was smiling and nodding. Yeah, oh, yes, yes, that's our own. Yes, it's all our own creation. Um, <laughs> so, and I think also part of the thing that helped me, and this is something that he said in interviews as well, was that I don't look like him. Mm. I look quite different to him. So it is a, you know, it's a new take on on the character um there are a couple of other people auditioning in the final audition who looked a lot more like him than i did and i all oh, right 
and I, and I remember thinking, oh, God, that's it, then I haven't got this. Um, but then I thought, no, don't doubt yourself. Don't doubt yourself. Get it back in there. Get back in there. So, yeah, there was, there was, it starts off with, it started off, I guess, with a bit of mimicry, but then as we were talking before, we, you hone it and you tweak it and it becomes perhaps a little bit more me during the run. Well, it sounds like that did you uh, some favours, really. If you tried to be too, uh, too much of a close impersonation, you may, you may not even have landed the job by the sounds of things. Yeah, that was a point that he made. And, and he said that in the early rounds of auditions, they got people coming in who thought doing an impression of Basil or doing an impression of John Cleese was enough. And, you know, and they sort of showed them the door fairly quickly. Um, mm. It's not enough to just do an impression. It, it's, you know, he's a, he's a living, breathing character. He's a really complicated character. And he um, um, sort of multi-layered and he's got all sorts of mental health issues, of course. Mm. But Basil's world, you have to, Basil doesn't, see anything wrong with him basil's basil's right it's like you know villains they don't know that they don't think they're villains basil doesn't think that he's odd or weird it's just the world is against him and he's struggling through as best he can every day basil doesn't see himself as a figure of fun he's he's just very very put upon and struggling against the world that seems uh, organized for his inconvenience it's not him it's everybody else really isn't yes it? exactly right exactly yeah. right that's I think that's that's a really good way of thinking about it. Yes, it's not him; it's everybody else, and it's that thing of um, that this hotel would run, run so much more smoothly if we didn't have to have guests. Uh, yeah, that, that that idea sort of puts me in mind of that famous Mitchell and Webb sketch where they're playing Germans in the trenches, and then David Mitchell's character has that epiphany: "Are we the bad guys?" <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, Basil never had that epiphany. He never realised that he's the guy oh, no. who's making everything fall apart. No, no, he's yeah, he's the when he digs that, he gets the spade, he digs that hole, and he keeps digging and digging and digging. Yeah, he never realizes that's what he's doing, of course, and that's part of the part of the wonder, wonderful joy of it. Part of the fun, isn't it? Mm. Did John Cleese, presumably through Eric Idle and just through having an, a, a personal interest in Spamalot as a Monty Python thing, he was would be aware of you having played his parts in that production. Did that play any do you any favors in uh, in terms of casting? Do you think, or was it by the by? Maybe, maybe yeah. I, I think I think so. I think because uh, around the time that Faulty Towers was auditioning, or just before, John Cleese and Eric Ida were doing a tour together, um, and they would, you know, go on stage and answer questions and have a chat, and uh, so they were talking at the time. So I think it would have come up, and, and I did see an interview with them where they were interviewed on Australian TV to promote this tour that they were doing. Mm. And John mentioned writing Faulty Towers, and he he said in passing, "Oh yeah, we've got our Basil. He was in he was in Spamalot. And so yeah, I, I think they would have they would have discussed, and he would have asked Eric if I was you know worth yeah. considering that sort of stuff. Yeah. So and not that I'm trying to suggest you didn't get it entirely on merit, but of course the world does no. work on who you know as well as what you know, doesn't it? Oh yeah, certainly. No, no, of course, and, and it, yeah, it certainly wouldn't have hurt. Um, you know, provided Eric was happy with what I did in Spamalot, and I think, you know, he was. So, oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's that thing of I, I find that particularly here, the, the longer I hang around, the more people I, I know or I know people who know people or I've worked with people because it's a relatively small industry and I've been working away for, for a long time. And so, yeah, yeah, just that thing of hanging around and not going away. 
<laughs> yeah. Actually, on that, I, I sort of related to that. Alison, uh, my co-host, was sort of a little bit confused as to how Melbourne's come to be this sort of breeding ground or testing pot for uh, productions that end up going worldwide, albeit Faulty didn't, which we'll come on mm. to. But um, I remember Cat Stevens did a musical that was in Melbourne and never went anywhere further. And mm-hmm. is there any, probably this is something that Australians know, but um, we were just a little bit like, I wonder why, wonder why Melbourne has become this sort of de facto t- testing ground. Yeah, I think well, everything's changed now, of course. But I think, yeah, well, the, the Harry Potter play is here and, and, or has been here. You know, it's closed at the moment. But uh, that's Melbourne's the only place in Australia to get that. Melbourne, I think, has a sort of a cultural reputation, more so perhaps than, than, than Sydney or, or has had in the past historically. Yeah, I, I'm not sure why that would be. I, I think the, the government's pretty amenable and enthusiastic to to you know, sponsoring and welcoming uh, productions here that might have something to do with it. But, uh, but, I, but you're right. That Cat Stevens one was tried out here. I think also there might have been a Dirty Dancing musical which was trialed oh, here okay. in, in in Australia. That might have been Sydney though. But yeah, and I was just stunned when they did that with Multi Towers. And yeah, I wonder if it's similar to the way the New Zealand government feathered the nest of the movie studios to keep. Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and stuff here. Maybe the Australian government offer subsidies and tear up labour protection agreements to allow. Well, to allow these I, I people think there'd be elements in. of that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think there'd be elements of that. It's you know it's good for the economy and so on and so on. Yeah, I was surprised and just delighted when both Spamalot and Faulty Towers came right to my backyard. You know, they don't, don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> Wonderful. So um, where else did it go over the Melbourne? It toured all over Australia, I believe, didn't it? Um, yes, it it did. It did. Uh, started in Sydney, then yes, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, and Brisbane. It was meant to do a couple of or a couple of weeks in New Zealand, but that's I remember. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't have tickets. I know there were friends of mine who had tickets who had to get a refund. Yeah, yeah, that was really really disappointing. But I think. It, I think, if memory serves, there was a quite a serious earthquake and then mm. ticket sales were slow and then ticket sales came to an absolute standstill and just wasn't viable. I think no, nobody wanted to go and um, sit in a big room with a thousand other people for two hours. Uh, people were just a little, little nervous about that. So, yeah, we would have loved to have finished up by going to New Zealand. That would have been great. But as it was, it finished up in Brisbane in, in the January. And to, to your knowledge, it wasn't planned to go even further afield after that to, to Broadway or to London? It was planned to go further afield. It was planned to go to England and all of the sets were built in such a way that they could be um, disassembled and put in shipping containers and shipped back to England. Mm. And as I know that's what happened. Um, I always understood that they were going to put it on in England after the proving ground of, of Australia and Australia was a, like a... Off, 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 off Broadway tryout, approving, you know, proof of concept, and and it and it worked well in Australia, well enough, I would have thought, but I, I don't know why that never happened, and I would have thought that this would be in a in a small to in a small theatre on the on the West End, this could just run forever. I would mm. have thought because when you go to because obviously West End so much about tourism dollars, people coming in from outside of London, and and if you see that name on there you know what you're getting and it's like people going to see the mousetrap because it's a thing that you do um i would have thought that if you put it on in a 
you know, an appropriately sized theatre and got a good cast, it, just the brand recognition and people coming to theatre to, to, to see something similar but different to what they like, I don't know why that wasn't. It is a strange thing because you had such good reviews for the for the show in Australia. Yeah. So it really was a, a proof of concept that worked, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. If, if they were concerned about I think any bugs that were in it were well and truly worked out. And, and yeah, as you say, the reviews were good. So I think for, for um, ticket-buying customers, that's pretty, pretty attractive. Uh, so yeah, I don't know why that all fell over. And it's, it's a shame. I did see a quote from John that said um, when he was asked why it was launching in Australia, he said, the British press don't like me very much. That's right. So yes. <laughs> perhaps he was reticent to, to think about doing it in Britain after Australia, but even so, the Americans love it. Why not Broadway or something, you know? Yeah. Very yeah, strange. Or, yeah, I, I would have thought it really, I really did think it had legs. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll never know. It's a mystery lost in the mists of time. We'll never know. So, um, as you say, it was based on these three episodes, which was, uh, remind me again, it was the Hotel Inspectors. Yes, and Communication Problems, which is with Mrs. Richards, and um, uh, the Germans, which has the Moosehead and the Germans, of course. And and there was a little cameo from Basil the Rat in the show. So it's interesting, actually, that two of those that, that John picked to base the show around featured real problematic guests, didn't they? With Mrs. Richards... And uh, Mr. Hutchison, is that Cribbin's character's name? Yes, that's right. Um, and we, I actually stuck a poll up on Twitter last night. Let's have a look, see how it's doing. Who was the most obnoxious guest Basil Fawlty was forced to endure? And the options were <laughs> Mr. Hamilton, Waldorf salad guy. Of course, yes. Uh, Ronald with the wrong-shaped chips. Oh, the boy, yes. The young boy. <laughs> Mr. Hutchison and Mrs. Richards. And can you guess who's leading that poll as it stands? I think Mrs. Richards. Correct. 47% of the votes. <laughs> so this is a preempt to the quiz I'm going to give you towards the end, Stephen. <laughs> oh, okay. No worries. Get the thinking cap on. I suppose, yes. Um, good, good comedy comes from conflict. And you cannot be, you almost cannot be in conflict with odious characters like Mrs. Richards and Mr. Hodgson. So. Oh, yeah. They're, they're asking for trouble. Yeah. As well as these three episodes, though, um, I believe there was a lot of sort of, well, uh, uh, some new material worked in to the show. There, there was some, but not really much. It was, it was a melding of the three, and and the plots were sort of running concurrently with each other. And and obviously there was a it's a two act structure, and the first act was about an hour, and the second act was about forty five minutes. New material. There was. In rehearsal, there were sort of um, changes and amendments to some of the script script as we went along. There was, I'm just trying to think, there was some stuff that never made it in, like we would rehearse it and it was then it got dropped. So by the end of it, I wouldn't say there's only maybe two or three new jokes that weren't in the show. Mm. And one of them was the Germans. Um, at one stage, one of the Germans says bitter, as in, excuse me, and Basil says, <laughs> you want beer? Um, you want beer. Um, <laughs> I remember that. I don't think that was in the original show. And that no. was added in. In terms of other stuff, there was one thing about Winnie Mandela being black, which was the major going off. Um, 
Oh, it's the bit that was sort of banned. Yeah, that's right. To bring it more into modern day, was that the thinking? Yeah, I think in the in the original show, isn't there something about Winnie not being black and getting confused with Winston Churchill and cricketer or something, Winnie the Pooh or something? Maybe. Well, he took yeah he he took a he took a young woman to to the cricket because he doesn't understand women and and he says and she went she went away to powder or something and and I never saw her again. She's still got my watch. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, that, there was something John tried to update that with a reference to Winnie Mandela or something, but that never made it to the final um, version of things. There was a big, all, as I say, all the plots ran concurrently, and at the very end, there was a big sort of uh, climactic ending where. Um, Hotel inspectors, you know, the penny drops and the major's gun goes off and someone gets shot in the foot and that's all the rat comes running out. And uh, it was like a great big sort of set piece ending. So that mm. was, I guess that was new material that, that everything was building up to because the pace was getting faster and faster and faster and it finishes off with this great big um, crescendo. So in terms of lines in the script, I, I only remember that one about bitter beer. Everything else was as per the show, because yeah, it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, True, yeah. You didn't manage to slip in any ad-libs as the, as the show went on and you sort of saw an opportunity to just throw in a gag that, that you knew would work? No. Were you too dedicated to the actual script? Was that more what the production was about? Yeah, I, I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think that would have been uh, encouraged or, or, or I think it was, it was all just do the, do the, do the job and, I think I'm, I'm, I tend not to be that kind of performer anyway. I tend to take it really, <laughs> really seriously. I remember one night um, one of the stage crew wanted to play a practical joke on me and uh, I was just mortified. There's, there was, um, I, there's one stage where I, I run off into the kitchen and come back out with Holly's German book or something and no, no, I go out to get a hammer to, to um, rush into the kitchen. The stage stage um, manager is there to hand me a hammer and I come back out to hammer up the moose into the wall. And one night I went out there and he had his hands behind his back and he shrugged with a big goofy grin on his face. And I went, what? What? Where's the hammer? Where's the hammer? Where's the hammer? And th- he saw how mortified I was and then, you know, pulled it out from behind his back as in, you know, I was just having a, having a laugh. That's not but, a kind thing to do to a performer no 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 i was furious and then i went back out there and carried on kept doing the thing you can't afford to stop you can't slow down yeah so i'm still going out there doing my lines and doing the doing the action and thinking in the back of my mind why would he do that to me why would he sabotage me oh my god how could he do that and while I'm still doing all the things and having misunderstandings with the major and um yeah no one played any Practical jokes on me after that. <laughs> <clears throat> Did you um, hit the roof when you came off stage, or were you simmered down by that point? Oh no, I had a quiet word. And, um, <laughs> were you still in character? Were you were you going crazy? <laughs> no, Basil Mania. No, no. I give him a damn good thrashing <laughs> tree branch. But uh, a, a lot of a lot of uh, the other cast were off stage for quite a bit of time, and so there were practical jokes going on backstage, of course, and little in jokes. And uh, someone had a little toy, soft plush toy, a rat. Um, and each night they would hide it somewhere behind the set, and we had to find Ratty each night. 
you know, just little little things, in jokes that people do to amuse themselves. Yeah, all part of the camaraderie, I suppose, in a production like that. Exactly right. Yes. So with, with you saying you took it very seriously, I'm presuming that you're not a method actor and you went home and started asking, uh, answering all your wife's <laughs> questions with, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, no, I was able to. <laughs> I was able to switch off. Yeah. Um, although I good did, job. I, I, yeah, I did. I did another job not long after that where I had to run down a corridor, and um, I I did it, and the director said, "Yeah, can you do it a little bit less like Basil Fawlty next time?" <laughs> <laughs> so some of the uh, some of the muscle memory was still there, just <laughs> because I yeah. Once once you start <laughs> moving like you, um, it is a bit hard to stop. Have you um? Have you? This is a little bit off on a tangent, but I don't suppose you mm. will have caught the um, the show that's been on in the last couple of months called uh, The White Lotus that's been streaming. No, I know of it. Um, no, it's well, it's about someone who runs a resort, and he's Australian. Um, yeah, the actor's Australian, Murray Bartlett. But um, Twitter is awash with people comparing the character Armand, who's in this, to Basil Fawlty. Oh, okay, I should have a look. Yeah, it, it's a very different show to the Faulty Towers. It's more of a drama with comedic elements, I would say. And right. um, without giving too much away, the the, the hotelier uh, Armand, he uh, he is perfectly civil to his guests, actually. Until oh no, in fact, he's always civil to his guests. But he's a he's a drug addict, basically. And when he gets high as a right. kite, he be, his mania comes out, and he's almost channeling Basil Faulty. Oh, I'll have to have a look. The look in his eyes and his, his demeanour <laughs> becomes very Basil. Faulty-esque. Yeah, same manic energy and sort of facial madness to him, you know? <laughs> so let's just talk a little bit about the other, well, it's one of the many other strings to your bow, which I guess is your quiz career, because you've... Um, Got a reputation and as as being the, the quiz guru in Australia, I believe. Well, um, I yeah, I've been on a couple of a couple of quiz shows. We had here uh, Sale of the Century, um, which uh, ran for a very long time, it ran for like twenty years uh, in the eighties and nineties, and uh, that was rebooted later on as Temptation. And I went on Sale of the Century a couple of times and lost, and then. Um, Came back five years later and on Temptation, and which was the same format as Sale of the Century, and won through seven nights and uh, won the um, the big jackpot. So um, I, I am I am a, a quiz uh, fan, and I did lots of homework studying. And for the part and since 2013, I've parlayed that into a blog, which is called HowToWinGameShows.com, and HowToWinGameShows.com is about Interviews, tips, tricks, and, and uh, behind-the-scenes chats with people in, in the industry, and it's just meant to be something that, if you're an aspiring quiz contestant, you might find helpful. Um, after Temptation, the next year there was a show called Australia's Brainiest Quizmaster, and so that was a whole lot of previous quiz show winners up against each other, and I squeaked through, just squeaked through and won that as well. So um, oh, wow. I do have, yeah, I do have a trophy that says Australia's brainiest quiz master on it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, it, it doesn't get a lot of use. You're looking as if you've put it away up in a loft when really it's pride of place on your mantelpiece, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. And it's in my profile. 
no, it's not. <laughs> um, so yes, how to win game shows. Yeah, so uh, it, it, I used to also run pub trivia nights with a friend of mine, and I've, I've written for um, written questions for various quiz shows and game shows. So it is it is sort of a lifelong passion of mine. And uh, yeah, as I say, back in 2000, 2005, 2005 uh, in between jobs, I went went pretty hard at it on Temptation and it paid off big time. Were you at one point the the recipient of the largest prize money in Australia or something like that? At the time, I think it was the second. It was the second biggest winning at the time. Uh, yeah, so life-changing, life-changing stuff, eggs. <laughs> oh, and I've, I've, I've fritted it away on a house and it has changed everything. And my wife and I were not married at the time and it's just a fantastic start to things. And, and our daughter was born the next year. And so it was just wonderful, wonderful thing. Or a serendipitous timing then, really. But that's actually not giving you the credit you deserve to say something like that because I guess you would have put the hours in to accomplish it. I did train hard for it. I did a lot of training. Yeah, I did, did a lot of training because you can do training and people think it's sort of people think, oh, well, you can't really train for it. It's just general knowledge. But there are all sorts of things that you can do and, and, and there are all sorts of um, exercises you can do and all sorts of study you can do, which, which I sort of going to in more detail over at the blog, howtowingameshows.com. And I believe there's an ebook you can you can get as well that you wrote, How to Win Game Shows, 197-page compilation of winning tips, hints, and techniques, plus interviews with game show champions, host producers, and question writers, according to your Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Um, yeah, after I'd been doing the blog for a couple of years, I wanted to, I thought that might be helpful if anyone was interested to um, condense, condense a lot of the... Um, information and, and interviews and knowledge and, and there's a little bit of autobiographical stuff in there too about my um, whole journey for want of a better word so yeah I packaged all that into an ebook which is, um, which is uh, over there on Amazon. Do you become part of like a subculture of, of quiz people in the same way that I don't know if you saw that that show that was on a couple of years ago quiz with um, Michael Sheen in it Yes, I did see that show. Yes, I reviewed it on the site. Oh, did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's an interesting show to watch, um, and, and yeah. certainly a lot of the people who were, were auditioning to go on "Who Wants to Be a Millionaire," or rather, were, were phoning up. They were dedicating their entire life to it, weren't they? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that was. Um, and and there is a, a subculture of of quizzing, and and all. I think all the chasers people too. Uh, very, very keen in, in quiz, into quizzing, and I've spoken to a couple of the Australian chasers, and they regularly do quiz tournaments. And there, there is the Australian Quiz Association or whatever they're called. But um, yeah, people really, really do take it very seriously. I've also stayed friends with Martin Flood, who was um, Australia's second Who Wants to Be a Millionaire millionaire. Yeah. Well, are you ready to test your um, your quiz credentials with the uh, with the Faulty Towers quiz that I specially prepared Ooh. for you? Yes, sir. All right, then. Now you're putting me on the spot. Okay, oh, don't embarrass yourself, Stephen. Come on. Well, I've tried not to make it too easy, but I've also tried not to be a complete dick about it. <laughs> 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 oh, that sweet spot, yes. Yeah. We're just a daft little podcast. You don't have to swap for this. There's no prize money involved. Just okay. Me. Let's get that on record. There's definitely no prize money <clears throat> Roger that. 10 questions. Actually, let's do it in the style of mastermind. Where's my kazoo? I've got a kazoo for my... Uh... <laughs> Where's my kazoo? That could be my new catchphrase. Uh, okay.
Name? Stephen Hall. Specialist subject? Faulty Towers. I'll accept that. You would have got a bonus point for saying the bleeding obvious. Ah! Oh. <laughs> so, we've got some questions for you, Stephen. Question one. In what year did the first episode of Series 2 of Faulty Towers originally air? Four options for you. 1975, 1976, 1978, or 1979? 1979. Ah, you're just out. It was 1978, the first episode of Series oh, 2. Oh, no! It finished in 1979, oh. but unfortunately, the first episode was 1978. Bad start. Never mind. In the hotel inspectors, why is Mr. Walt in Torquay? Is it for an exhibition on outboard motors as a witness in a court case to view a, an eclipse of the sun or for a summer holiday? It's um, it's an exhibition on outboard motors. And I remember this because I bought as an opening night gift, AJ, uh, Andrew Johnson, who played Mr. Walt in our production. I bought him a pair of cufflinks that were in the shape of outboard motors oh wow <laughs> now i wish i'd pit something harder <laughs> but we've got you <laughs> off the board we've got you off the board here's a good one ballard is it berkeley or barclay i'm never quite sure ballard barclay i'll accept either five points ballard barclay the major was close friends and flatmates for a time with which hollywood a-lister was it errol flynn Cary grant Lawrence olivier or alec guinness tough one eh that is a tough one. That's obscure, isn't it? Wow. Mm. For some reason, uh, uh, I'm just thinking Cary Grant. You're correct. It was Cary Grant. They shared hey. They shared an apartment in their early days when Grant still went by his real name of Archie Leach. Uh, yes, which, again, John Cleese called his lawyer character in A Fish Called Wanda as homage to. Yeah, it, it's all. It's all. It all links up. Yeah, yeah. Question four. Who played the Basil Fawlty character in 1997's Over the Top, one of many unsuccessful Fawlty Towers reboots made stateside? Was it Scott Foley, B. Arthur, Freddie Prinze Jr. or Tim Curry? Did you say it's called Over the Top? Yeah. Because oh. I've, I've heard of Snavely and I've heard of Amanda's Place. Well, I'll give you a little bit more context. Mm. Um, in this one... The character is an actor. The Basil character, I think his name is actually something like Stephen. Um, and the Manuel character is played by Steve Carell. Right. But he's Mexican or something. Right. I've heard of this. I didn't know it was called Over the Top. Um, I can rule out the Arthur. Um, I don't know who Scott Foley is. I'm going to say Scott Foley. No, it was Tim Curry. Unfortunately, Tim Curry, of course. Why wouldn't it be Tim Curry? I'm stupid. Of course it was Tim Curry. <laughs> well, I tried to fool you with B. Arthur because she she was also in a Faulty Towers reboot, wasn't she? Amanda's, yeah. Amanda's or Amanda's by the Sea. And I've, I've watched an episode of that and it's, oof, it's awful. One too many. Oh, yeah. It actually reminds me a little bit of when they tried to do a British Golden Girls and they called it Brighton Bells. Have you ever seen that? No, I didn't know about that. Don't go looking that one up if you want to retain okay. your uh, sanity. It's awful. Okay. All right. Um, question five, maybe. Who knows? I've lost count. <laughs> In Waldorf Salad, when Basil asks him to work overtime to cook dinner for Mr. and Mrs. Hamilton, where does Terry the chef say he's about to go to? Is it a football match, karate class, a nightclub, or to visit his girlfriend? I think it's a karate class. Correct. Very good. About time. 
Three out of six there, I think. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Who composed the theme tune to Faulty Towers? John Williams, Trevor Peacock, Mark Ward, or Dennis Wilson? Dennis Wilson. Of course. Of course. Which of these pet nicknames does Basil not call Sybil? My Little Piranha Fish, Toxic Midget, Poisonous Primrose, and Sabre-Toothed Tart. Big Poisonous Primrose. Yeah, well done, Stephen. That was a tough one. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. excellent. Uh, what is the address of Faulty Towers? Is it 16 Elwood Avenue, 54 Grant Avenue, 31 Hawkstone Drive, or 5B Tooting Road? Goodness me. I didn't know this one either, to be fair. No, I can't even think where that would be mentioned. I can't even, I'm trying to, I'm cycling through trying to think where in any one the episodes the address of Faulty Towers. Perhaps he does it on the phone when he's on the phone to a builder or Sybil's phone in. Yeah. Maybe. Um, the replacement builders when O'Reilly's messed up. I'm not entirely sure. Gee whiz. When? Um, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to guess 16 or whatever. Correct. Hey! <laughs> how did you do this. that? How did I do that? I don't know. Maybe it's back in the back of my mind somewhere. I don't know. That's, you don't become the, the quiz guru for nothing. Mm. You need a bit of luck along the way. A little bit of felicitous populi, as Lister called it in Red Dwarf. <laughs> Love Red Dwarf. Two more. Can you name the husband of invisible character Audrey? Was it Eric, George, Terry, or Michael? Audrey. Audrey's husband. Eric, George, Terry, or Michael. I don't I'm not gonna it's not gonna be Terry because the chef's called Terry. Eric, George, or Michael. I'm gonna say Eric. No, it was George, unfortunately. Uh, I tried to help you out there by naming three of them after Pythons. Yes, I, I did. I did, <laughs> and and I thought I, I did spot that it was George. George, it's difficult with an invisible character, though. I mean, you never see Audrey, let alone George. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And does, does Audrey not come to the anniversary? No. Oh yes, I think she does. She does come to the anniversary. Yes, I beg your pardon. She's yeah. she's almost an invisible character because she comes, but she's barely has any presence. Yeah. Yeah. She's usually just on the other end of the phone to Sybil. Yeah. Or Sybil says, oh, no. Why is she telling you that? Yeah. <laughs> and the final question for you, uh, which other British sitcom did the actors who played Miss Tibbs and Miss Gatsby appear build as the same characters? The options for you here are Only Fools and Horses, The Good Life, Just Good Friends, or Sorry. Wow. I think it's going to be after Faulty Towers. So I'm going to say I think Sorry was before Faulty Towers. Um. Yeah, I'm going to say only fools and horses. You're right again. Well done. Hey, lucky guess. Weirdly, they're billed as the same characters on, on the IMDb credits, but they weren't really playing the same characters. They just happened to be the same two old ladies, yeah. and they rocked up to Del Boy's market stall and bought some veg off him. Right. And uh, but the same costumes and same? No, just no. They were just dressed as Peckham market goers, really. Right. Oh, there you go. I actually dug, dug that out and shared it on our social media if you want to watch it. Yeah. Okay, we'll do. I think. Got, uh, and so, how, how long after Faulty Towers was that? That would have been 1983, I think. Oh, hold on. Right. When, did, when did Leonard Pierce die? That was 82, I think. It must have been 81 because he was in that scene. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I think you got seven there. I think you only got three wrong. 
Did I really? Yeah. Jeez, I felt like I was doing much worse than that. Good. Excellent. Yeah, you got a few <laughs> lucky, lucky guesses in and you did quite well. <laughs> yeah, lucky guesses. Lucky guesses. Now, you've, I think you've cemented your reputation there, Stephen. I wouldn't worry. <sighs> Thank you very much. I give you permission to continue your blog. <laughs> Excellent. All right. I'll go and get my trophy out. Fabulous. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate you joining us and answering our inane questions. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great. Fun. It's fun to talk about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I also appreciate that it was five five or six years ago now, so it's difficult to cast your mind back. I don't remember what happened last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was a very it was, it was a very happy time though. And um just every night the audience was uh, were loving it and um it was just a just a wonderful thing to be able to do to make that many people laugh. Mm. Great. Good on you. Look, I know you've got a book out that you've written, a, a fiction book. That's right. Um I, I wrote a I wrote a science fiction adventure novel called Symphony Under Siege, um, which I set myself a task of writing a chapter a week uh, for a year, and um, uh, I did it. And uh, the novel is the highly edited and tweaked and honed um, end product of of that process. And um, <clears throat> so that's Symphony Under Siege. That's also on Amazon, and I'm writing another book which will be out hopefully in time for Christmas at the moment, which I'm calling a non-fiction book that's chock full of fiction. So uh, it's... Uh, You've invented a new genre. I've invented a brand new genre. It's um, And it, it's sort of scratching the scratching the itch of um, being a, a gag writer by trade. So it's just um, it's a non-fiction book, but there's just loads and loads and loads of gags in it. Um, so I'm putting that together as we speak, and hopefully it'll be out by the end of the year. Cool. Yeah, I actually had a look on uh, Symphony Under Siege. There's a lot of nice reviews for it, so it looks like it's done well for you, even though it's the first novel. That must be um, oh. very encouraging. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really, really gratifying. The people who have liked it have, have really liked it, and it's just, it is just escapism, boys' own adventure, daring escapes, and pirates in space, and uh, twists and turns, and um, larger than life characters. It's just, yeah, it's just an escapist, fun, rollicking adventure. Well, I think we all need a bit of escapism at the moment, so I think I might have to think so too. purchase that one this afternoon. <laughs> Stops me doing <laughs> any work, doesn't it? Excellent. Yes, that'll keep you occupied. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great fun. Thanks, Eggs. And just like that, Stephen was gone. Goose stepping into the night. I'm not trying to make out he's a Nazi, um, <laughs> more that he's Basil Fawlty. Lovely guy, as I'm sure you'll all, you'll all agree. Um, really interesting to speak to Stephen and find out about the production of Fawlty Towers. If you'd like to check out Stephen's blog, which, as he mentioned, is all about how you can get better at and potentially become a quiz champion like himself, you can go to howtowingameshows.com. Stephen's on Twitter at howtowingameshows, howto, number two, win game show. And you can also visit Stephen's own website, which is thestephenhall.com, Stephen with a PH. And before anyone writes in to point it out, yes, I'm aware that Stephen got the first answer to the quiz correct in, say, 1979, and I'm just a bit of a fucking idiot. So apologies to Stephen. He is, of course, the quiz master, and he got 8 out of 10, which shouldn't surprise any of us. Myself and Alison will be back, as usual, on Tuesday with a regular episode of the podcast. So until then, I'll see thee.